Zechariah in chapter 9, and I'm just going to be reading verses 9 and 10. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's invite the Lord for his help as we think about these two verses. Holy Father, short passage this morning, two verses that you saw fit to proclaim and to record, to preserve Words that have been spoken over and over again with hope. Words that have provoked the joy of your people for thousands of years. Words that we now intend to meditate upon. And we're asking you to speak to us through your word. And I'm asking you that you would impart to us a deep sense of joy. Joy in our salvation. Joy in our fellowship with you. Joy in our fellowship with one another. Joy in our great God and our Messiah. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, you probably are familiar with these verses. They're pretty well known, but normally these verses are thought of as a Palm Sunday text. We normally hear these verses on Palm Sunday, and the reason is because Jesus fulfilled these verses on a donkey on Palm Sunday, but this is definitely a messianic prophecy found in the minor prophets, and that is our theme for this Advent, and that is why we're looking at this particular passage. So Zechariah, Zechariah's prophetic ministry happened around the same time as Haggai's. We talked about him two weeks ago. That time was about 500 years prior to the birth of Christ. The first temple had been destroyed. The people had been in exile. The people had been returned from exile. And they were going about the business of rebuilding the temple for a second time. And it was around this time that Zechariah engaged in his prophetic ministry. And the, wor- the, the verses that we are looking at begin with a command. They open with a command to rejoice. It's not a It's not a suggestion, it is is an imperative, it is a command. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Now Zion is another name for Jerusalem, so Zechariah is basically just repeating himself, says the same thing twice in two different ways for emphasis. Now you might hear that, you might say, well good for them, glad that they are going to be rejoicing, but I'm not a daughter of Jerusalem, so this is not something for me to get excited about. If, if, that's, if that's what you're thinking, let me just challenge that a little bit. Paul had something to say in Galatians 4 about Jerusalem being the mother of all Christians. And we don't have time to go into that, but suffice it to say that all Christians are included as the daughters of Jerusalem. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, You are a daughter of Jerusalem. 
And you are commanded to rejoice at the coming of your king. And that is a Christmas theme, despite being a Palm Sunday text. The point that we need to get a hold of here is that God's plan for God's people is joy. God desires, God intended for his people to be marked by joy. That's his plan for us, is a plan for joy. And he, and he heightens the expectation of this joy in this passage by saying, it's great joy. It's not just joy, but there's levels of joy. And this is great joy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And then he, he heightens it again by saying that the kind of joy he has in mind is shouting joy. Shout aloud or shout triumphantly. That's what, that, that, where the word is, is used for trumpet blasts or victory shouts. It's a very loud word. It's a very joyful word. This is the kind of joy. This is not, this is not low-level joy. This is not, I got, the, I got the dessert I wanted today and I'm happy kind of joy. This is big joy. This is great joy. This is shouting joy. These two lines... Commanding our joy, commanding it, definitely make this an appropriate Advent text since Advent as a season is all about joy. And I think that one of the reasons that we humans need periodic festivals in our lives, right? The Bible is punctuated by periodic festivals. God commands his people to be festival people, have periodic festivals, One of the reasons we need these periodic festivals is so that we have specific times set aside for focused and intensive rejoicing. Seasons of rejoicing. Paul says says that as Christians we're supposed to rejoice always, right? We know that. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We know that verse. Maybe, Maybe we should go around all the time having this great joy, this shouting joy. But the reality is We don't. Maybe we should, but we generally don't. And so it helps us to have some special times specifically set aside for joyful celebration. And Advent is one of those times. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That is God's goal for us. That is our destiny beyond beyond all the brokenness of this world. There is a destiny that we had and it have and it is a destiny of joy, pure and unbridled rejoicing, unalloyed rejoicing, not a mix of 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 joy and heavy-heartedness, but unalloyed and pure rejoicing. That's our destiny. And any explanation of God's character, right? Any discussion about this is what God is like that doesn't include joy as part of that description is misleading because our God is a God of joy. Our God is a God who issues commands to his people and one of the commands he issues is that we rejoice. And when we fail to be a people marked by joy, we are misrepresenting our joyful God. And so the rest of this short text provides the basis for our joy. Right, we're commanded to joy. Okay, but why? Why? What's the, what's the reason for the joy? What's the basis for joy? It's tough, to, it's tough to rejoice for no reason. It's pointless to rejoice for no reason. So what's the reason? What's the basis? 
What will God do to make the daughter of Jerusalem rejoice? Well, here's where the prophecy begins. There's the command and then there's a prophecy. Command, rejoice. Prophecy gives the reason. Why rejoice? Behold, your king is coming to you. That's why rejoice. Your king is coming to you. He's not here yet, but he's coming. Okay, so a king that makes people happy is coming. Not, I know you know this, but let's remind ourselves, not all kings make their subjects happy. Not all kings induce joy in their people. But this particular coming king is the kind of king that makes people shout for joy. That kind of king. I, I thought about this this week. I thought I could come up with a good example or illustration of a political leader in my lifetime that had that kind of effect on people wherever he or she goes just elicits shouts of joy everywhere I couldn't think I couldn't think of a politician that does that I couldn't think of a politician that has that kind of impact on people but this one will this one will wherever he goes wherever this king goes it will be cause for shouts of joy that's an amazing thing when this king comes Children, little children, they'll get it. They'll know, they'll somehow intuitively know that this king, the presence of this king, is cause for me to rejoice. In fact, children, when this king comes, children will shout, Hosanna. And old men will dream, we're told, will dream joyful dreams when this king comes. The blind will see. The lame will walk. The deaf will will hear. Lepers will be cleansed. Outcasts are going to be brought into the inner circle. The oppressed are going to have the foot of oppression lifted up off of their necks and they will be released and liberated. The poor will have good news preached to them. Sinners will have their sins forgiven. We who had a death sentence hanging over our heads will have that sentence commuted and we will receive the gift of eternal life instead of death it will be a festival of joy when this king comes Zechariah commands the daughters of Zion to shout for joy because a king is coming who will do all these things and more now how is he going to do that why is it such good news that this king is coming well the next line gives us the answer the arrival of the king is cause for joy because this king is we're told righteous and having salvation righteous and having salvation so the first thing that Zechariah says about this coming king is that he's righteous okay he stands victoriously on the side of the right on the side of the faithful the ones who have waited in faithfulness and with patience, patience, ones like Simeon and Anna, you remember those stories of faithful people who are waiting for the arrival of this king, faithful people who have stood true to God's word over the years, people who have lived not perfectly because nobody lives perfectly, but people who have lived faithfully, consistently lining up their values and their actions with God's values and his commandments. Jesus once said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the righteous king coming from heaven 
will bless those who have aligned their lives with the righteousness of God. Again, not perfectly, but faithfully. That's the first reason that the coming of this king is good news. That's the first way that this king is going to make people happy. It's because he's righteous. He's not wicked. He's righteous. He's good, not bad. He's a defender of the righteous. He opposes the wicked. He comes bringing justice. He stands up for those in the world whom the world has hated. He stands up for those who are committed to radical love and radical justice. The tables will be turned and the righteous and the lowly will be vindicated and they will rejoice. And the second way that he makes the daughter of Jerusalem happy is found in, in, in what this righteous one is bringing. He's bringing a Christmas gift into the world. He's bringing something with them. He's bringing salvation. Salvation. But the, the, the way that the king is bringing this gift is actually a rather roundabout way. Technically, the word here translated, uh, translated as having salvation or victorious, depending on what version you're reading, uh, technically that word can also be translated to be saved. Having salvation, but also to be saved himself. And I think both are meant here. Both giving salvation and also being saved. He comes to save us, and he comes to be saved. Now, 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 how does that work? What could this righteously, righteous king possibly need to be saved from? That's a bit of a plot twist. Typically, the conquering king, if you picture a conquering king, he doesn't need to be saved. He comes to do the saving. And yet, this king who brings salvation needs to be saved. So from what? Well, not from his sins, but from the consequence of ours. The next two lines give us a clue what I'm talking about. It says that he'll, he'll be humble, mounted on a donkey, on, the, on, the, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he's humble. He's not arrogant. He's not self-exalting. And he's riding on a donkey. What does that mean? Surely there's symbolism there. Why is he riding a donkey? Well, coming right after the word humble, it, it reinforces this idea of being lowly and meek. He's not... He's not here to exalt himself. He's not here to put on a big show and impress everybody. He's not here for his own ego. In the Old Testament, kings did occasionally ride donkeys every now and then, but they did not ride donkeys when they were going into war. When they, went, when they rode into war, they rode on war horses. The donkey was an animal for peacetime, for work time. Not for wartime. What the donkey stands for then is that this king that's coming, he's not only a humble man, he's coming as a peacemaker. He's the king of kings, but he's also the prince of peace. When King Jesus literally fulfills this prophecy on Palm Sunday, you remember this scene? He rides this donkey into Jerusalem. And it says, when he drew near and when he saw the city, he wept. He wept over it, and then he said something. You remember what he said? He said, would that even today you knew the things that make for peace. Jerusalem, I want you to have peace, and you don't have it right now. And I wish you knew what it, was, what it is that would make for peace. 
I think that that, that, that that shows that his choice of a donkey to enter into the city is indicative of his desire to make peace. He came as a peacemaking king. And when Jesus rides into the town, people are shouting. Remember? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. King Jesus came on the donkey as a peacemaker. And not just to establish peace on earth between humans, but also peace in heaven between God and man. Peace in heaven. They cried that. Let the God in heaven be at peace with his people. So what Jesus was saying when he chose that donkey to ride in on was this. He was saying, look, I'm, I'm meek. I'm lowly in heart. I'm not far removed from you sitting on some throne where you can't even access me, but I'm approachable. I'm here. And you can find rest for your souls here in me. I'm not against you. I'm not setting myself up against you. I'm for you. I'm with you. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. I came on behalf of God, my Father in heaven, to reconcile you back to him, to bring you back, to establish peace between you and your maker. Now, how did Jesus make peace between sinful people and a holy God? Right? That's the big question that the gospel answers. How Jesus made peace between humans and God. Colossians 1.20 says it like this. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. He died and shed his blood in order to make peace between God and sinners. And looking back from this side of Christ's death and resurrection, we can see all of that in the prophetic words of Zechariah, right? Behold, your king comes to you righteous, humble, and riding on a donkey. He's righteous, which means he can be our righteous substitute and fulfill what we failed to do. He's humble or afflicted, which means he's willing to be rejected and despised and beat up and killed for other people. He's riding on a donkey, which symbolically means he wants to make peace. He comes bringing peace, not war. And that is why he gives himself up to death. And that brings us to the sense in which it's meaningful to think about this righteous king needing to be saved. Not saved from his own sin, but saved from ours. He will need to be saved from the scoffing and the beating, from the hatred and from our murder. How do you get saved after you've been murdered? How do you get saved after you've been crucified? Well, Peter gives the answer in a sermon that he preached seven weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says to this, he's speaking to a crowd in Jerusalem, and he says, you killed Jesus by the hand of lawless men. You killed him, but God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words, Jesus was murdered, but God the Father saved Jesus from the grave. He loosed the pangs of death. So in that sense, Jesus was saved. I recognize that it does not sound powerful or regal or divine for the coming righteous king who brings salvation to also be saved, but that is a picture of his humility and his heart for peace. He was willing to be so afflicted and so abused 
and so defeated that he actually put himself in a position where he needed saving. He didn't have to put himself in that position, but he was willing to go through that for us. He has laid down his life so that he might make us a genuine offer of reconciliation. He doesn't want there to be a barrier between us and him. He doesn't want hostility or indifference or our rebellion to stand in the way of that. He has come further toward us in his humility than we could ever go towards him. And that's the message of Christmas. So one final point this morning. Zechariah is a 2,500-year-old prophecy. It was given to a relatively small band of people living in the Middle East of the ethnic lineage of Abraham. So how does that prophecy given to those people so long ago, so far away, relate to us today? Verse 10 gives an unambiguous answer to that question. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. And he... This king will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the the point for you and I personally this morning. This king who came in humility to Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago, who came riding on a donkey of peace, now reigns in heaven at the right hand of God, and he commands peace to all the nations. His reign began humbly in Jerusalem. It spreads to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there is no people or tribe or tongue or nation excluded from his proclamation of peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He loves peace and he hates war. He loves peace and he hates hostility. He loves to draw near to us and to bring us near to him and he hates it when there is distance or enmity or bitterness or selfishness or unbelief that separates us from God. He came proclaiming his kingdom by his spirit and through his church he has been building his kingdom and he has promised that the gates of hell shall never prevail against his kingdom. And one day we're told, in fact, we're promised that his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This humble, righteous, crucified, saved, resurrected, peacemaking king will one day come back to earth as the ruler over all the nations. And his dominion will be established and it will be recognized everywhere. And that is our Christian hope. That is a hope that is fanned into flame during the Advent season, a season of waiting and watching and hoping and praying. And according to the Bible, when the king returns, there will be a judgment. And only those who have received the terms of peace from this king will enter into his kingdom. And in the meantime, King Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe in him. And he issues that command not for his good, but for our good. And for those of us who have received that gift of salvation from the true king, we have every reason to rejoice, to shout loudly. In fact, we are commanded to do so. We're commanded to rejoice all the time, but especially during the season of Advent.
Let's pray together. Holy God, thank you for this message of joy that you have spoken through Zechariah, that you have consistently spoken to your people. Thank you that you are a God of joy. Thank you that one of your core characteristics is joy and that you're a God who commands your people to be people who rejoice greatly and who shout for joy. And I pray that we would embody that, that our life, our church life, and our, and our families would be marked by that deep and abiding joy so that we might faithfully represent your character to the world. In Christ's name, amen.